Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. Today we have a special guest, Dr. Mark Spencer, who teaches philosophy at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota. We're discussing his first book, The Irreducibility of the Human Person. He's written many papers which look quite interesting, including one on the metaphysics of blood sacrifice, some on divine beauty, quantum randomness, hylomorphism, and classical theism, which if you want to impress somebody, just Make sure that's prominently printed and set next to you, maybe on campus, and all other sorts of very cool stuff. This book is, I got to say, a monumental feat. So it's it's about four hundred pages, and from my um, my my counting of the of the pages with the bibliography and a quick sum of what was on one page, with a wee bit of math, I counted just about seven hundred sources. And this book covers everything. It starts with the human person, but as you point out. The human person is a microcosm, a tiny universe in and of itself. So it covers, well, the universe. So what we're going to be talking today is only scratching the surface. But welcome to the podcast. Uh, Thanks. Great to be here. I appreciate it. Well, I figure we have lots to do, so let's jump right in. Great. We quote a ton from Thomas Aquinas. Of all Catholic podcasts, I think we get the award for the longest primary source quotes. And it's normally <laughs> either St. Thomas Aquinas or it's St. Augustine, though we've thrown some others in there. Um, right. Some may say it's just a bid to create more content without having to be original. But <laughs> others would say it's a bid to educate people directly from the source. Um, take that as you will. But we're big fans of St. Thomas Aquinas here. And you introduced something which I'm not familiar with. And more or less, not entirely, well, in a sense, you said it in opposition. And that's uh, phenomenology. I know almost nothing about phenomenology. And in the first chapter, you present the Thomistic vision of the human person. And at least that's presented as impartial opposition, or at least that's not the full story. And you supplement that with the phenomenological vision, which you go on to lay out. So for those Catholics who are foaming at the mouth kind of Thomists who believe that all Catholic theology and philosophy is just a commentary on Thomas Aquinas, can you explain what does phenomenology give us that Thomism does not? Sure. Yeah. Um, so just for, for those of your listeners who might be um, unaware, phenomenology uh, in and of itself is a, a movement in philosophy. It began in the, the early 20th century, and it's a movement that focuses on the structure of human experience. Uh, so what it's trying to do is uh, reflect upon the various kinds of experiences that we have and give a rigorous description of each of those kinds of experiences, sensory experiences, intellectual experiences, affective experiences, um, all the different sorts of experiences we have, uh, describe how they are related to one another, uh, not from a, a sort of external or metaphysical point of view, but from an internal first person point of view, uh, from the point of view of what it's like to have these experiences. So we describe these experiences and we describe how various kinds of, of objects show up in them. Um, in, in sensory experiences, objects like uh, visible objects or auditory objects are presented to me. In intellectual experience, objects like essences and universals are presented to me. Um, so we're trying to describe from that internal, subjective or first person point of view, how these different kinds of acts and objects uh, show up. Uh, I, at the end of the day, I don't think that phenomenology and Thomas Aquinas are uh, opposed to one another. I, I think at the end of the day, they can be complementary approaches 
they've often taken to be a they, people have taken them to be opposed. Um, and I think we do need to be clear on the differences. But at the at the end of the day, I think that we can bring them together. Uh, I take it that Aquinas's metaphysics uh, has us begin our reflection upon the human person and our reflection upon reality uh, sort of through observation. We observe that things change and things stay the same. And on the basis of this, uh, we posit principles like form and matter. And then we come to see the human person as a particular instance of uh, substances that change and stay the same. And we describe the ways in which human beings change and stay the same. We'd give a description of our powers and our acts. So we're working here from a, a sort of objective, uh, third person, external account of the world uh, and reasoning to an account of, of what is particular to the human person. The phenomenological approach, by contrast, begins with subjective experience. Uh, what's the structure of subjective experience? How are different experiences related to one another? Now, I think it's a it's a key feature of the human person that we do have subjectivity, that we are uh, experientially aware. Uh, Thomas Aquinas certainly is aware of this fact. Everyone's aware of this fact. And he gives descriptions of these things, but within the context of that broader uh, sort of Aristotelian Platonic metaphysics that he's working on. And uh, I think it's helpful. Other Catholic philosophers of the last century, for example, John Paul II, Edith Stein, uh, have thought it helpful to uh, supplement a Thomistic account of the human person with a phenomenological account uh, by reflecting uh, upon our experience, by reflecting upon subjectivity. We discover aspects of the human person that are underexplored in the, the rest of the tradition. Uh, and then furthermore, sort of apologetically, in terms of persuading others of the truth of the Catholic conception of the human person, it's helpful to have recourse to phenomenology because uh, so many thinkers of our own time uh, and so many just ordinary people are hyper-focused on subjectivity and subjective experience. And so if we can show that subjective experience has a structure that's the same in all human persons, and that on the basis of that structure, we can reason to uh, uh, truths about the human person, like the existence of form and matter, the existence of various powers, um, then I think that gives us a, a sort of advantage. Gotcha. So to kind of summarize that up, it sounds like the typical Thomistic position would be to describe things from the third person um, in more of a clinical, scientific uh, way, to break things apart, as Thomas says, in order to show how they then fit together. That's Whereas right. it sounds like the phenomenologist would start with the whole and begin their begin their their position from that the first person the subject himself or herself and then begin the inquiry from there is that is this just kind of a difference of starting points i i think so um i think it is a difference of starting points um the the philosopher who's really best on this and who i appeal to a lot towards the beginning of my book is sanita stein um and that's certainly the way she sees it we've got these two starting points uh begin with uh, interior conscious experience or begin with exterior observation of the, the physical world uh, and reason on that basis. I'm not sure I'd want to say that, that Aquinas starts with uh, you know, parts or breaking things down versus phenomenology starting with holes. I think there's something really holistic about both approaches. 
um, Thomas Aquinas is really interested in, in grasping the person as a whole substance. Now, in order to do that, we need to look at our various principles and powers and so forth. Um, but he really does have a very clear vision of the human person as an integral, unified whole. Um, and, and I think at least the best phenomenologists do that as well. So that's the sense in which they can be complementary. But I think there's also a sense in which um, not Thomas Aquinas himself, but others who take a sort of Aristotelian approach to the human person could see us sort of non-holistically as just like a collection of powers. Um, but likewise, phenomenologists can see us reductionistically um, as just say uh, a collection of subjective experiences. So I think there's a danger of um, sort of losing that holism either way, but also resources for, for capturing that holism on both sides. Yeah, I think those are some really good points. And just to kind of clarify for the listeners, often when we hear the term um, subjectivity, we think, oh, it's just not objective. It's not real. It's made up. But it seems that you're kind of working with a, a definition that's that's not quite in common parlance. So what does it mean to have a subjective experience? Yeah. So to say that we have a subjective experience, um, if, if, you know, if the word uh, subjective sort of raises your hackles, then, uh, you know, say conscious experience uh, instead. Um, when I when I think, when I see, when I feel, when I choose, um, there's not just, say, actualization of powers going on. We can't just describe things in this sort of uh, detached external way. Uh, but there's something that it's like for me to uh, to choose. And there's something that it's like for me to, to think and to see and to hear and to engage in all these other conscious acts. So subjective here is just meant to capture that idea, um, that there is something that it is like for this subject to engage in these acts. And I think some people kind of view the, the idea of a conscious act or, or this subjective first-person experience as that would be in a camp of um, just living regular life. Whereas what, what we're doing here with that kind of this is this power, that's that power, this is the substance, this and that, that's kind of the intellectual philosophical stuff. But to me, it seems that um, the ability to have these conscious acts is actually the very beginning of philosophy, where, where we actually have to have a person to look at, say, even a simple truth like one plus one equals two and to understand those two concepts on either side of the equal sign and to just see that they are equivalent um, or see that they are not equivalent. There has to be a, a conscious awareness of truth that without that, if that was dropped out entirely and there was no who in order to address these things, I don't see how we could have a what of any philosophical knowledge. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so uh, you, you find, for example, um, in various materialist philosophies. So there's this, this uh, movement in materialist philosophy called eliminative materialism, um, which, which thinks, you know, in the future, we will no longer talk about who's, we will no longer talk about, you know, experiences of thinking or seeing or any of these things. We'll just talk about brain states. Uh, so, you know, in the future, we'll just have this, this perfect brain science and we'll talk about this region of the brain being activated or that region of the brain being activated. Um, and there's something kind of ridiculous about this, uh, because in the very talking about a view like this, you have to think, you have to experience the theory. The, the theory uh, has to be presented to your mind 
such that you are able to grasp it and know it uh, and so forth. So there's something just uh, ineliminable about conscious uh, experience. Uh, and and I don't, again, I don't want to, to draw too much of an opposition between phenomenology and Thomism. Thomas Aquinas talks about experience uh, over and over again. Uh, he talks about acts in which objects are presented to us, uh, in which we grasp objects. Uh, and, and I see phenomenology as sort of providing us with some resources for uh, clarifying that stage of metaphysical analysis. So I just have to get to one part of your book, and I think we have a good enough segue here. Okay. I thought it was fascinating when you addressed the question of um, what type of cause is the will in relation to the brain? Mm -hmm. You say, well, sure, it could be a final cause. It could be a formal cause, but it's also an efficient cause. But you deal with an objection, which I thought was very interesting, that said, well, hang on, physics, we're in a closed system. We don't have a, an increase in, uh, in total energy. So in order to move from um, whatever way you were moving before to divert to a, different, um, to a different action because of the will as an efficient cause, well, then we would have had to have made a physical change to have that uh, different physical outcome. But to have a physical change would require the input of energy. So... How do we deal with that objection that says that the will um, would have to be inputting energy into what we know is a closed system in order to be an efficient cause? I thought that was a really cool section. So feel yeah. free to, to give us the answer. <laughs> <laughs> it's an attempt at an answer. Uh, yeah, so um, this is where I, I bring in, you, you mentioned at the, the beginning of the, uh, the recording that... Uh, that I, I deal a bit with um, quantum mechanics and quantum randomness. And, um, and this is where I think uh, modern physics has given us uh, a sort of avenue whereby we can see how uh, non-material causes uh, like the human soul, like the human will, um, but also things like angels or, or other non-material causes can affect uh, the, the course of the physical world without creating new energy. Uh, so to, to sort of sum things up, uh, modern physics presents us with a picture of, of matter on which matter uh, moves and develops, material systems move and develop in a, a random way. That is their, their motion through space, their change of momentum states, their change of position states is governed by probabilistic laws rather than deterministic laws. Given the position of uh, a physical system at one time, there's not a determinate path that it's going to follow through space-time. Uh, rather, there's some likelihood of it being found at various positions in space-time uh, moving forward. And uh, the way I think about uh, these material systems in relation to immaterial causes uh, is hylomorphically. Right? So on, on Aristotle and Aquinas' hylomorphism, uh, matter is structured by form, it's given identity by form, it's given unity by form. And so what we have here is, is on the account that I'm working out, we have probabilistic matter that's being structured and unified and given identity by immaterial form. Now, form is something absolutely definite. To, to grasp the form of something is to grasp what that thing definitely is. 
there's nothing sort of probabilistic about uh, what it is to be some kind of substance, what it is to be a dog or what it is to be a star or what it is to be a human being. Uh, forms uh, on this view not only give identity to their matter, not only make them some substantial kind, like make them a dog or a star or a human being, um, but they also confer definite states upon that probabilistically developing matter. Uh, if we observe material systems, we find that uh, as they move through space-time, uh, they not only move in a probabilistic fashion, but they also take on definite states. If I observe a physical system, it takes on a definite position state. It's not just sort of probabilistically spread out across different positions. Uh, and so I ask, well, well, what causes it to take on a definite position state? This is a, a huge problem in quantum mechanics, in physics. Uh, we don't know what causes uh, material systems to take on definite position states when observed. And so my proposal is that it is form. It's substantial form which causes material systems to take on definite position states. Now, my form contains my will. And so the idea is uh, when I make a, a decision in my will, uh, my form then causes the matter of my brain and the matter of the rest of my body to take on certain definite position states, position states allowed by the matter's probabilistic nature. Uh, and thereby my soul can, so to speak, steer my body, uh, cause my body to move in certain definite ways without that introducing any additional energy. It's just taking advantage of the probabilistic nature of the matter that's already there okay so it, so in that view it would be um the will or the soul would be be collapsing quantum wave states into one or another determinate form that's correct yeah okay and this uh, is an account not just of the, the human well it's an account of all forms um other forms do this you know like the form of the the dog or the form of the tree also steers the matter so to speak of that uh of that substance, but it does it in a way determined by the thing's nature uh, rather than freely. Uh, but my form collapses the quantum states of my matter uh, in accord with my free choices and also in a way following my nature. Ed Fazer has a really good analogy where um, I think it's in um, oh, Aristotle's Revenge. Mm. Um, I like any book with revenge in the title. Um, <laughs> Consider, if you have a second, um, a, a second edition, maybe the revenge of the irreducibly uh, human man or something. Um, but in that one, he describes it as like um, as you move up and down the, uh, I don't care, I guess it'd be the levels of nobility if you wanted to get uh, Thomistic. So to something with a higher level of actuality, it <laughs> seems to be more determinate. And as you push towards prime matter, it's like that needle registering being is kind of uh, it's kind of fluttering when it yes. gets down there. It gets more and more stable. So mm -hmm. that seem and when we get all the way to that beginning, what we would call prime matter, um, that would be towards what physicists would commonly cause uh, call like a quantum wave. It's something which is its potential um, and uh, has not yet um, been determined in any formal way. That's right. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think I'd want to distinguish between prime matter. I do want to distinguish between prime matter and quantum matter. Um, prime right. matter being sort of pure potency. Quantum matter has mathematical properties. Um, 
right? Like uh, the, the probability states of being found in various position or momentum uh, states. But it's, uh, but yeah, it's a sort of one level above prime matter. So right. Yeah. Aquinas, I think, says that it's impossible for prime matter to actually be found by itself. So that's right. But, but we're getting close, you know, yeah. as we push further towards that, that needle's a moving. So, yep. um, well, another thing I wanted to kind of circle back on um, when you're talking about the phenomenological idea and Thomism and whatnot, is that is uh, you talk about how Aquinas describes language as a type of limitation. Um, but in that discussion, you describe our particular position um, as the intersection of material and, uh, and spiritual and how the types of thought and understanding we have can properly uh, transcend language. And we shouldn't just see it as, as a limited to. So can you kind of flesh out like like how what, what's the full idea of how we can understand things and communicate that to our our neighbor? Yeah, so here I'm, I'm very much drawing on Aquinas and others in the scholastic tradition. Um, so this idea that what sets uh, human knowing, intellect, human intellectual knowing, apart from, uh, say, the way in which animals know their, their surroundings, um, is this, this openness that we have to grasp uh, any being. So there, there is no kind of being that our intellects cannot, in principle, grasp. Um, and also grasp uh, what it is to be each kind of being. So other, other knowers, animals, non-human animals, uh, are capable of grasping certain features of beings, certain accidental features of being, uh, ways in which those, uh, those beings correspond to their needs, right? So they can know things like as prey or as predators or as other members of the herd or as potential mates or things like this. Um, but human beings are able to uh, transcend just focusing on the accidental features of being and just focusing on the ways in which beings correspond to our needs. And we're able to grasp uh, the very essences of beings, what, what beings are. Uh, and then we're able to ask uh, why beings are the way that they are. Uh, now, the way in which I, I think about this, again, following the, the Thomistic and, and broader scholastic tradition, is this idea that um, in coming to know a being, my intellect shares in its form. I come to participate in uh, the very fundamental identity of the beings uh, that I know. So intellect, intellectual knowing, is fundamentally uh, that participation, that sharing in the forms of the world around me, of things in the world around me. Uh, now, we can then uh, create signs, uh, material signs, spoken words, written words, um, that convey something of uh, what we've grasped intellectually. But the function of those uh, of those spoken or written words is to try to help other people have that uh, participation in being for themselves. Uh, participation in being transcends, it goes beyond uh, anything that is captured in material words. Uh, though those material words can certainly help us have that participation. So that's why I want to distinguish this. That we've got the, the material level, the sensory level, uh, which is limited. Um, and then we've got this higher sort of total participation in being that we're capable of. 
Gotcha. Yeah, it, it, that kind of reminds me of a section as you were talking from uh, your critique of Nouvelle th theology, mm -hmm. where it's where you also describe that as a type of reductionism. You said that um, that implies that we're not um, uh, by nature disposed towards um, uh, certain types of, of acts, whereas you give you give good old Thomas Aquinas the win here instead, <laughs> where Thomas says that um, that grace does allow us to go over and above our, our nature, whereas Nouvelle Theology seems to just reduce it to only an act of grace upon us. But what you said earlier about um, how we by nature are open to mm -hmm. those types of things, but not in a but in an active way. I, I forget who it was who said uh, the mind is like a stomach. It wants to to to, to grasp on. It, it is empty, but it's supposed to be filled to have something substantial. Um, it, so it, I, I liked that you offered the critique of that type of reductionism. So can you kind of expand on what is the difference between Thomas's understanding of the action of grace on us, allowing us to do these certain types of acts? And what is the Nouvelle Theology understanding of the role of grace and how, uh, how is it reductionist? Sure. Um, so just to, to connect this back to what we were just talking about, about the, the intellectual, the structure of intellectual acts, um, both the, the traditional Thomistic view and the Nouvelle Theologie, which is, uh, you know, people like uh, Henri de Lubac, uh, Hansers von Balthasar, uh, Joseph Ratzinger, people like this. Um, the, the thing that they have in common, I take it, is this idea that we have a power, the intellectual power, uh, which in principle is capable of grasping any being. And we have this other power, the will, which is uh, a power whereby we are capable of loving and desiring any good. So these powers are sort of totally open to grasping um, anything whatsoever. Uh, and it is because we have this power, the, these two powers, uh, that we are capable of being elevated by grace uh, such that we can come to know and love God in and of himself. Now, so that's what I think what they have in common. Now, what do they have different? Um, the traditional Thomistic view uh, has this, this view that uh, there are certain acts, certain intellectual acts, certain volitional acts or acts of will, acts of love that we are capable of, sort of purely by our own effort. The idea here is uh, there are certain objects in the world around us that are proportioned to us, that they, they fit with us. Uh, they're at the same, as it were, metaphysical level of perfection as us. And we are capable of grasping those objects by our own effort. For example, the, the essences of material things. I can come to know these things. I can do science. I can do natural philosophy. Grasp these things uh, purely by human effort. Um, but then on the, the traditional Thomistic view, there are some objects that are not proportioned. They don't fit naturally with my, uh, with my powers. Uh, for example, God in himself, right? I'm a finite being. My powers are finite and God is infinite uh, and unlimited. And, uh, and so I cannot grasp God in himself, uh, in his essence, uh, by, my, by my natural powers. Uh, and the traditional Thomistic view says, okay, now we've got these two claims. I've got an intellect. It's open to grasping any being. 
Um, but by my own effort, I can't grasp some beings. By my own effort, I'm not proportioned to or fitting with uh, the being of God. So how is it that I can come to, to know God in himself? Uh, well, God would have to elevate me. He would have to give me an additional gift, enabling my intellect to grasp him in himself, enabling my will to love him in himself and to love as he loves. And that gift is grace, uh, this participation in God's own life, in God's uh, knowledge and love. Okay, so that's the traditional Thomistic view. The, uh, the Nouvelle Theologie view is, uh, is trying, I think. I think their, their motivation is like my motivation. They, they want to uh, really grasp the irreducibility of the person. They want to say we are not reducible to, say, just another material substance. Uh, being an intellectual being, being a being who can love, being a being who's open to grasping and loving anything whatsoever sets us apart from other beings. Um, so in their motivations, I, I agree with them. Uh, I think those are, those are the right motivations. Uh, what they do then is they say, okay, since we're open to any being whatsoever, uh, and since all beings exist for the sake of God, and we exist for the sake of God, uh, that means that we must have this natural desire, this natural openness to grasping God in himself. Uh, there's sort of a, a grace that has been implanted in our, uh, in our nature from our origins by God. Uh, and everything else that we do, every act of intellect that we perform, every act of will or love that we perform uh, is sort of uh, within, the, within the confines uh, within this structure of naturally desiring and in some sense knowing God in himself. So everything that we do, no matter what, is done uh, for the sake of knowing and loving God in himself. Um, and I, I think that view is reductionistic. Um, and by that, I mean, it, uh, it leads us to overlook or deny certain key features of the human person. Um, and in particular, what I think it overlooks and what the Thomistic, traditional Thomistic view gets right is the way in which the human being is open to what is new. We're open, our, our nature, our powers are open to being modified and elevated in new ways. Uh, on the Nouvelle Theologie view, uh, we're not open to anything new. We sort of already have everything that we're all ever going to have. So we have this natural desire, this natural connection to God. Um, we can live that out better or worse, but there's no way for us to take on uh, new desires, uh, new modes of knowledge, new ways of seeing the world. And I think it's, it's just human experience that we are capable of, of taking on uh, new ways of knowing and desiring and loving the world. The traditional Thomistic view captures that. It introduces this distinction between what they call natural potencies and obediential potencies. Natural potencies are, are powers for grasping and loving and willing uh, things that are proportioned to us. Obediential potencies is this, this openness that we have to take on entirely new ways of knowing and, uh, and loving and willing. Uh, so I think that, that distinction and the way in which the, the traditional Thomistic account has cashed out the relationship between nature and grace um, just captures human experience better. Um, and it, uh, it, it doesn't require us to deny certain experiences that human beings have. Um, and so for that reason, I, 
my favorite. Um, all the while recognizing that the new Val Teologi uh, has the right motivations, um, get some things right. Well, thank you for giving a very clear answer to my very unclear question. Um, no, I think that was that was a very good way to put it. Um, kind of thinking out loud here. Good old Uncle Aristotle tells us that the soul is potentially all things. But mm -hmm. Thomas Aquinas would say, whoa, 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 slow your roll here. Um, God is not a thing, right? We have to make some distinctions there. Mm -hmm. So to me, it, it kind of seems to parallel this discussion in that it could be true that by nature, we have the ability to um, grasp the good of things in the created order. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't imply that therefore we can we can grasp the the maximum of goodness, which is itself infinite because we're not infinite. So we would need the help of the infinite mind, which knows himself perfectly in order to understand God in the way that God understands himself, not the way that a creature would understand somebody who's properly unlimited. That's right. Um, so long as we're talking about the the natural potencies, these powers we have um, that we can exercise under our own efforts and that our powers for um, grasping and intending things that are proportioned to us, I think that's that's absolutely right. Um, this, at that level of natural potency, uh, the soul is, uh, you know, in a way, all created things, we might mm -hmm. say. Um, but then if we introduce this this Thomistic idea of the obediential potency, um, this this power that we have for being uh, in a state of obedience and receptivity to God. Um, at the level of those powers, uh, we have an, an openness to being elevated by grace uh, such that we can come to grasp uh, God in himself. Uh, the idea here is, you know, uh, I can grasp, it is possible for a human being to come to grasp God in himself. It's not possible, say, for a rock um, or even like a horse. Uh, and so there must be something in me by nature uh, which renders me capable of being elevated by God in that way. And that's this Thomistic idea of the obediential potency, uh, this openness to receptivity from God. Gotcha. So the grace builds on nature. Correct. Right. Yeah, I think that this distinction between uh, beings in the order of grace versus the order of nature is actually quite biblical. I have, I have something from the Apostle Paul on the tip of my tongue, but I can't quite get it out. At very least, I would say um, we're told that Jesus was made a little less, a little bit lower than the angels. And that's because he took on a human form. So in the order of, of nature, we understand he was lower than the angels. But quite obviously, through his uh, hypostatic union because he's entirely God. Well, in the order of grace, of course, he transcends all created things. So I'd offer that for people who want a little bit of scriptural basis as an example of a distinction between beings um, in the order of nature and the order of grace. That's right. Yeah. And I mean, St. Paul and, and others in the, in the New Testament um, talk about this, you know, this, this elevating power of grace. Um, the way in which it gives us new gifts and new ministries and prepares us for, you know, a, a future state, which we cannot even really anticipate what it's going to be like. Um, so there's this this idea running throughout the New Testament of uh, of openness to what is new, um, that, that God is doing a new work in us. Uh, and I think that's captured well by this 
this Thomistic distinction between uh, nature and grace. Uh, all the while, um, you know, being aware that that grace really does build on and perfect and actualize nature. And there is something in our nature which is an anticipation of grace, namely this obediential potency. Sometimes the Thomistic view is sort of caricatured as like there's these, these two levels, nature and grace, and the two don't touch one another. And so I do some things naturally and I do other things in a graced way. Um, and that's not, I think, the traditional Thomistic view at all. Uh, grace very much builds on nature. It perfects nature. It brings nature to its, its highest state, elevates nature um, even while perfecting it. Um, it's the state that God intended for us from the beginning. Um, all of that is there in the traditional Thomistic view. All the while recognizing that we need to make a distinction between uh, those features of what we are and what we can do that are under our own effort, that don't require special aid from God, and those uh, that do. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I wanted to, to um, address something which which I need you to to help me settle my mind on. Okay. <laughs> and that is, I think you're the man for the job. <laughs> that is the question of survivalism. I've heard uh, many people talk about how at the point of our death, when we're separated um, soul from body, we only exist in a mutilated state. And because a human being is, by definition, both body and soul, when we're only a soul prior to the resurrection, we're not properly human. We're in a mutilated state. So I figure since you wrote a, you know, a book on the irreducibility of the human person and a paper on survivalism, you could kind of clue us into what exactly is happening here. Are we still us prior to getting our bodies back? How does that work? Yeah, great. It's, I mean, it's a fascinating debate and it's a debate that a ton has been written on. Um, so I encourage your listeners to you know, seek out the various uh, papers and books that have been written on each side of this debate. And it's a fascinating debate because I think it captures so many different facets of uh, the human person and, and issues having to do with the human person, just like that nature-grace debate that we were just talking about, on which, of course, uh, a great deal has been written as well. Um, so the issue here, yeah, as you said, is uh, after I die and my soul lives on, uh, is that soul uh, me? Is it this person or not? Um, and, and here, because uh, I want to talk about the two sides of the debate, but I also want to note that the way in which this debate has been framed over the last 15, 20 years since this debate sort of got started in the contemporary literature, um, it's a debate sort of over two things. Uh, one, what's true? And that's the debate that I'm really interested in. And then uh, second, a debate over uh, what did Thomas Aquinas think about this? Um, <laughs> of course, yes. It's important for figuring out what's true, mm -hmm. but, uh, but not the same question. And uh, there's a lot of people who are sort of party to this debate. And I'm, I don't know, kind of an outlier in the debate in that I think uh, Thomas Aquinas meant one thing, but the actually the opposite view is true. So here's a point on which I depart from what I take to be St. Thomas's view, though that's certainly a point of contention. So the, the two sides of the debate uh, are called survivalism and corruptionism. The corruptionist says uh, human beings are essentially rational animals. Animals are material things, so we're essentially material things. Uh, we need matter. It's part of our essence to have matter. Uh, and so if something lacks matter, that thing can't be a human person. The separated soul, the soul uh, after death and prior to the resurrection, lacks matter. 
so it can't be a human person. Um, it's part of a human person. It's a, it's a very distinctive part of the human person, namely the form. So it preserves the person's identity. It preserves uh, their, their powers. It preserves their intellectual acts and habits. It pres preserves their, their moral virtues or vices, which reside in the will. Uh, so it's a really important part of the human person. And it allows the human person to come back into existence at the resurrection once matter is uh, re-added to that soul. Uh, but in that interim state between death and resurrection, uh, it is not the human person. So that's corruptionism. The survivalist, uh, by contrast, and I'm a survivalist, uh, says... Uh, argues that the, the soul after death and prior to the resurrection uh, is a person. Um, so there's a couple of ways in which one might go about reasoning about this. Uh, one is, you know, the, the soul preserves uh, my conscious experience, or at least a, a good chunk of my conscious experience. And we might think, if, if something has my conscious experience, if something has my subjectivity, uh, if it sort of experiences the world as I do, exactly as I do, then that's just me. That's sort of all the evidence we need that that thing is me. Uh, another piece of evidence sort of getting into the weeds of Thomistic metaphysics uh, is to say, uh, on Aquinas's view, the soul uh, in this interim state, this separated state, retains my, uh, my act of existence. Uh, that which renders me the being that I am, that which renders me an actually existing being. And also on Aquinas's metaphysics, uh, uh, acts of existence are proportioned to, they fit with, they actualize essences. So if my act of existence is there, uh, then my essence ought to be there too. And if my essence is there, if what I am is there, then I'm there. Uh, so these are two, there's other arguments uh, for survivalism, but these are sort of two reasons one might have uh, to retain uh, survivalism. Uh, and then maybe just one more sort of from, from Catholic practice. Uh, we invoke the saints. We, we talk to the saints sort of as if they are people. The church encourages us to do that. If corruptionism were true, uh, then something weird would be going on here. We'd be sort of invoking persons who don't exist. Uh, even though like part of them exists, their intellect and their will continues to exist. Um, so we might think survivalism sort of fits better with Catholic practice. Now Aquinas is, I think, is a corruptionist. Um, he says things like, uh, I am not my soul. And he also says things like, uh, when we pray to St. Peter, we're not really praying to St. Peter, we're praying to St. Peter's soul. Uh, so he explicitly says things like this. This, this suggests to me that uh, on his view, um, we're corruptionists. And I think given his whole metaphysics, um, he ought to be a corruptionist. Um, so even though I'm a survivalist, um, I'll say to your listeners, if you're strict Thomists, you ought to be corruptionists. Um, because I think it just sort of follows from his account of the human person. If we are animals and to be an animal essentially requires matter, then uh, after death, you're, you can't exist. You, you are lacking an essential part. Um, since I'm a survivalist, for the reasons that I laid out and, and for other reasons as well, um, I think I need to uh, modify my account of what human beings uh, essentially are. Uh, so on my view, a human being is essentially uh, a soul. That is, what do we need necessarily to exist? We don't need matter. We need a soul. Um, now, we're a, a distinct kind of soul. We're not like angels 
that uh, can sort of perfectly well exist without matter. Uh, we are our souls that are our forms. They're meant to inform matter. They're meant to structure matter. Uh, many of our powers we cannot exercise without matter, like our senses, our feelings, all of our biological powers. Um, and so the, the soul without the body is in uh, a radically, uh, I use the word mutilated, it's in a mutilated state, it's in a debilitated state, it's in a state where it can't uh, do many of the things that human persons ought to do. But nevertheless, on my view, it is a whole human person. Uh, so we are essentially souls, but we are normatively, uh, that is, we ought to exist in an embodied state. Um, you can think, on, on my view, on the survivalist view, you can think about death as a, as a really bad amputation. <laughs> like you, you got your whole body chopped off, um, but you still exist. I think that that's exactly what, what the position I take. I've always been uncomfortable saying that St. Peter in heaven is not the same person per se. It's just his soul. Mm. So I like the things that you offered that um, one, hey, we had some phenomenology kick in here mm. with the um, the seat of conscious experience um, is there. The, yeah. Those memories, those experiences, that first person perspective. Mm -hmm. So we can say whatever it was, whoever it was who experienced um, Jesus in the first century, is the same who who is experiencing Jesus currently in heaven. Yes. And I, I think that qualifies as, as a person. I, I also like how you bring up the um, active existence and the, uh, the essence. Mm -hmm. As Thomas, we kind of flop back and forth between two things which are more or less different metaphysical, I wouldn't say systems, but at least way of thinking. We go between form and matter and then uh, essence and existence. Uh -huh. And, it seems that we kind of get a little bit of a confusion when we're flashing back and forth here. But what you offered with um, that person has the same act of existence um, carried through. Um, I think that that helps to clarify the union of the person better than telling maybe what would be the same story, but using the language of form and matter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think uh, um, I'm glad that that makes sense. Um, I do think we need to, you know, tell a story about how form and matter are involved here. Um, mm -hmm. Since it is a form, a soul that on, on the view I've outlined has the essence. Um, so we need some account of how it's related to matter. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, uh, to tell a story and you, you can correct me if I'm wrong or whatever, I'm thinking off the cuff here. Mm -hmm. Going through scripture, we have a few examples of um, forms interacting with matter prior to the resurrection, but in a way that relates to uh, a body. Mm -hmm. um, one would be uh, whatever whatever Saul saw when he saw Samuel. Now, it could have been a vision, but at least there was something giving him that vision, mm -hmm. which told him it was the person, Samuel. Um, another example would be angels who are forms, who were given temporary bodies, or at very least, maybe not temporary bodies, the powers which relate to having a body. So they eat and drink with Abraham. Mm -hmm. So I could see something similar going on with heaven, not being given a body, but being given at least the powers which would be proper to being a human being um, prior to the resurrection. And I think what motivates that for me 
is the fact of union with God in heaven. So if heaven is union with God, and God is, we are both huge fans of the fourth way, and we'll definitely have to get to that a little later. God is the maximum of being and the cause of all beings. So to me, it seems that if you're in heaven, you have this act of existence, you have this form, you have a soul, and you are joined in with the maximum of being, then you have a type of perfection that would perfect what you ought to have perfected um, according to your nature. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean a, a resurrected body yet that does come, but I do think that whatever is necessary, whatever perfection would be required in order to qualify as a person, I don't see somebody in heaven joined with God not having that. I think that's right. Um, though I, I should say, sort of, to be fair to the corruptionist position, the corruptionist is also going to affirm that the souls in heaven are having the beatific vision. Right. Uh, it's just... Uh, what does that do, though, I think is the question. Yeah, so, so what does that imply about what those things are, what those souls are? Um, and I think I agree with what, what you just said about um, this Im implying having that, uh, that perfection of being a person. Um, otherwise, we have to say uh, there is, is something there having the beatific vision, uh, something that is uh, a soul of what used to be a person, um, that is not a person. There's no sort of uh, who there in the full sense of the word who. Um, and this strikes me as as odd. Um, some of the reasons you just outlined. You know, I'll, I'll throw in one more reason. And that is, um, if I had to pick one um, out of everything, it might just be purgatory. The idea that we're separated from our body and then we have this act of purification and the church teaches temporal punishment Mm -hmm. It just does not seem to follow from the principle of justice that one could have a temporal punishment applied if they are not the same person. I think so. To me, you just have to have the same person in order for God to be just to enact punishment in purgatory. That's right. Yeah. So purgatory or hell or heaven or hell um, or heaven. Yes. It needs to be uh, uh, sort of merited punishments or rewards. Um, yeah, it would be odd to say uh, something is being punished or rewarded there, but it's not the person. It's just part of the person uh, who did these things. Um, there does seem to be something at least a little uh, yeah, in tension with uh, an account of justice. Now, the corruptionist can say things to, to you know, try to, to try to make this all right. You know, it's, it's the part of the person that engaged in the acts of will that led to meriting a punishment or a reward. Um, but still, there's, there's something odd there. We don't punish powers. We don't reward powers. We punish and reward persons um, in our ordinary sense of the words punish and reward. Um, so I think that's right. I think that account uh, on the basis of justice uh, works well. And I think that if they want to go down the route you described, um, that's just going to make, make it more difficult for them to give a good account of how Christ redeemed people in an incarnational way. So if they're going to say, well, it's only a part which merits, mm -hmm. well, then it seems that we'd have to extend that logic to Christ and say that it was only his soul that merited us salvation. Hmm. And, and that doesn't seem right. I mean, I think that it was through his incarnation, life, death, and resurrection as a human person um, that, that he merited those things. That's right. Yeah, so it's persons who, who engage in these acts. Um, it's not parts. 
um, and that's true of us. That's true of, of, of the son of God uh, incarnate. It's, it's true in each of these cases uh, to have a, a, a personal act, an act like knowing or loving or meriting or any of these sorts of acts um, without a person, without a, a complete who there who is doing these things um, seems to be at least in, in strong tension with the very idea of these acts. These are personal acts. And so there needs to be a person there who is engaging in these uh, these acts. So we've we've um, we've been talking a lot about 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 Aquinas. And my typical approach is to believe everything Thomas Aquinas says, unless I have a, a good reason otherwise. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's been working well. <laughs> and I think we found a couple reasons to believe otherwise places where other thinkers have expanded past his thought. In a couple areas where it sounds like both of us believe that the argument lands um, on the other side, uh, like what we were just saying. Mm -hmm. so, to, so to kind of continue with that theme, um, somewhere in the book, um, you describe how um, uh, substances or how matter could have, it sounded like two substantial forms, whereas Aquinas would say that parts exist virtually in the whole. And that picture was always a little difficult for me to understand and for the following reason, because mm -hmm. elsewhere Aquinas says that we are metaphysically dependent on our parts. And I think that's intuitively true. Mm -hmm. So if I not only got rid of your body, but got rid of your soul, well, then I've gotten rid of you. Mm -hmm. um, so I do seem, it does seem that my parts actualize my existence as a whole. Or at very least, we could take the negative case that if they were no longer there, I would not have existence as a whole. Mm -hmm. And yet Aquinas also says that something in a state of potential cannot do any actualizing. So it seems that we have a bit of a contradiction that he places parts as of, he describes them as something which is in a state of potential and also says that they actualize the thing as a whole. Now, mm -hmm. I'm sure a, a good Thomist could sort me out on this one, but just from a surface level, I, I am attracted to the view which you seem to be putting, putting out um, that, well, why can't we just say that there's the same material which has layers of substantial form, if you will. So what, what is that tension there? Where do you, where do you end up landing on um, the relation of parts to whole so with, with regard to the substantial form question? Yeah, good. Thanks. Um, so I, I should mention here that th this part of the book um, sort of builds upon a paper that I, I co-wrote with a friend, uh, Tim Paul, um, who's a, a good friend and, and colleague at the University of St. Thomas, where I teach. Um, so we, we were reflecting on uh, a couple of different sort of uh, experiences, again, motivated by modern medicine and modern science. So we were thinking about things like uh, um, organ transplantation. Uh, so, you know, you can, you can take my heart out of my body, you can preserve it, um, and it, it retains its, its power, it retains its ability to pump blood, and then we can put it into another person's body, and it takes on those same powers. Uh, we were thinking about things like uh, when you go in, um, you know, to the, the hospital for various, you know, scanning, CAT scans and things like this, uh, and they give you like a, a radioactive uh, dye that you, you drink and then it goes through your body and then they can image various parts of your body. Um, 
those those molecules, those atoms, can be traced through your body uh, as they pass through the body and then and then move out. Um, so it looks like here we have, at least sort of from an exterior perspective, from the point of view of observation, it looks like we have the same thing, the, the same whole uh, being preserved, even though it is in multiple substances. Um, on Aquinas' view, uh, what we need to say is that when a part, um, and, and here we're talking about parts uh, not in the sense of like prime matter and substantial form, but in the sense of like your organs or your cells or the, the elements out of which those organs and cells are made. Um, Aquinas thinks, as you said, uh, that these things are, are merely virtually present in substances. That is, they are present uh, by their powers. Uh, their, their powers are taken up into the substance, but they are not actually present. Um, so what we need to say is, uh, say I, I drink some water and then that those water molecules are caught up into my, uh, into my substance, even though it looks like the same water molecules are present there before I drink the water and after I drink the water, um, they're not actually present there. Right? Now the water is only present virtually or by power in me. Um, and that struck us as, as odd and also something that a hylomorphist just doesn't need to say. Uh, Aristotle has this idea that uh, when possible, we should save the appearances. We should come up with a metaphysical view that fits with the way things appear uh, whenever possible, all other things being equal. And so we, we devised this view, and it's a view inspired in part by uh, some of the Franciscan and Jesuit scholastics uh, that, uh, yeah, whole substances are made up of substances. So I'm a substance. Uh, I am a whole with a substantial form and powers and teleologically directed towards an end. Uh, but so is my heart, and so are each of my cells, and so are each of the molecules uh, within me. Um, I am a, a distinct kind of substance. Right? I'm a, a person or supposit. Uh, and so I have a, a sort of, uh, of control over those part substances. Uh, they are my parts. Uh, their powers uh, and their acts serve me and my ends. Uh, but they are distinct from me and they can't exist without me. Uh, and, and that seems to be the way the world shows up. And we wanted to capture that. Uh, in, in our metaphysics. So yeah, each batch of matter within me uh, has multiple substantial forms. There's the forms of the, the molecules, there's the forms of the cells, there's the forms of the organs, and then there's my form. Um, but my form, uh, as it were, coordinates all of these part forms uh, to serve my ends. Yeah, you really had me really had me thinking about that one if if i had to place a bet right now having only learned this theory recently i think i would actually bet on what you described um yeah i i think that's more intuitive i think that makes sense i i gave in another podcast on free will determinism in hell mm -hmm. um an analogy which i was pulling from book 10 of the metaphysics where where um where Aristotle describes different types of oneness or unity. Mm -hmm. And he describes a surprising amount of types of oneness or unity. And I gave the, um, the analogy of, of number. And that, that's one that's been in the tradition elsewhere. Um, it's picked up with Thomas Aquinas. And to me, given the analogy of number, what you describe can make sense. For instance, if I take the number 
um, six, we can say the number six as a whole is the reason for the unity of the set of factors which relate to six. But that doesn't destroy the fact of the real existence of, say, uh, uh, two and, uh, and three and the interrelation thereof. We can say that there's something that goes over and above the sum of the factors of two and three that only sums to five. But the relation of those two real things can allow us to call that relation a six, something over and above, not strictly reducible to. Mm -hmm. but also caused by those factors. So we get to preserve a lot of the things that we'd like to preserve. I am caused by the existence of my organs, but mm -hmm. not in a way that's reducible to the sum of the actuality of my organs. There's an actuality that goes over and above and as a whole is therefore the cause of the unity amongst those organs and amongst those factors. I think that's absolutely right. Um, and oh, hooray. <laughs> and the, the kind of uh, the the kind of unity that I have is not just that I am a I, I'm not just another substance uh, in addition to those substances, right? Where six, three, and two are all numbers in the mm -hmm. same the word number. Um, but I'm both a substance and a a suppositum or a person. Um, that is, I'm a, I'm a distinct kind of whole. Uh, so the idea here is sort of the the highest level whole. In, in any uh, batch of matter uh, has a, a distinct kind of unity. So the, the dog as a whole has a distinct kind of unity over and above the kind of unity that belongs to its part substances. Um, and so likewise, I have a distinct kind of unity over and above the unity that belongs to my uh, part substances because all of those parts are my parts. Uh, they're not just holes in themselves uh, they belong to me. They serve my ends. Uh, their matter is my matter. Uh, so we can capture sort of the, the idea that uh, my existence is, as it were, built up from their existence, but also that I have a totally new kind of existence in unity over and above their existence in unity. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I, I'm glad that you didn't say, actually, you're totally wrong, Jake. So I guess that's positive. <laughs> So <laughs> you're free to at any point in the episode. Um, well, oh, there's so many ways I want to go. I'll, I'll, I'll let you choose your adventure here. Um, speaking of things I know almost nothing about, and that's a long list, um, you talk about the divine energies and you relate that to the overall thesis of the book. Mm -hmm. I don't know anything about the divine energies. I know almost nothing about Eastern Catholic thought. Mm -hmm. um, I'm pretty much St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas with very few exceptions. So can you kind of explain what's going... Oh, that's a big question. <laughs> Describe a little bit what, what what use of the divine energies um, did you use in describing your, um, your overall thesis that the human person is irreducible? What role did that play? Yeah, so um, this, this terminology of energies... Um, which uh, I don't like the term energies um, because it sounds kind of, I don't know, new agey or something. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, Energia, so, right? I think you use yeah. the Latin in the book, right? Yeah, or Greek. Yeah, so the, the Greek, Greek there you go. Energia. Um, and yeah, it gets sort of transliterated as energies. So we can just use that, but just sort of flag that. It's, a, it's just a, a sort of anglicized version of the Greek word energia. Um, which is often translated as, as actuality or activity. 
uh, or something like that. So this is a concept uh, that's found in the Greek fathers. Um, it's a concept, it's, it's a word that Aristotle invented, um, but it's, it's developed by the Greek fathers. Uh, so by people like St. Gregory of Nyssa, um, St. Basil the Great, St. Maximus the Confessor, St. Gregory Palamas. Um, so there's sort of a long tradition in the East and then it sort of comes into the, the Catholic tradition uh, especially when, when the various Eastern Catholic churches came back into union with Rome. Uh, they sort of brought that, this theology with them. But it's, a, it's language that's used, um, for example, at the, the Third Con Council of Constantinople. There was a, um, a heresy that said that uh, Christ has only one energy. It's called monoenergism. And this was condemned by the church, uh, the claim being that he has... Uh, two energies, a divine and a human. Um, so what is, a, what is an energy, an energia? Uh, uh, the idea here is uh, every being is uh, active. Uh, to be a being uh, is to perform acts, uh, is to do things. Uh, put differently, uh, beings manifest themselves. They show themselves through their actions. Uh, so the idea here is, you know, we, we've got these, these transcendental properties of being in the Thomistic tradition, this idea that every being, just insofar as it is a being, has certain properties, like it's unified, or it's intelligible, it's true, or it's desirable, it's good. Um, the idea here is, uh, this is another transcendental property of being. To be a being is to be active, to engage in activities, to manifest oneself uh, in some way. Uh, this is true of creatures. Uh, so you and I have energies. That is all of our activities, everything that we do, uh, everything that manifests uh, our human nature. Uh, so, you know, all the way from, from biological acts, all the way up to intellectual and volitional acts. Uh, but it's also true on the Eastern view uh, of God. Uh, God manifests himself in acts of creation, in acts of giving grace, uh, in acts of uh, coming in the incarnation. Uh, each of the things that God does is a manifestation of God. Uh, and the East thinks uh, when we're talking about God, we need to distinguish between uh, what he is, his essence, his usia, uh, that which is shared by each of the persons. They are all homoousius of one usia, one essence as one another. Uh, we need to distinguish that from his activities, the ways in which he manifests himself. Uh, and, and we human beings can come to share in those activities. Uh, God makes himself available to us uh, in an active way. For example, he, he loves you and he knows you, and he reveals himself to you, and he uh, gives you grace. Each of these are acts uh, that he performs uh, towards you uh, and towards me. And we can come to share in those activities, and so share in his knowledge and his love and, and so forth. Uh, now, I make use of this, uh, this distinction, which I think is a helpful distinction, um, in, in a couple of ways. Uh, one is, I, th I think, in order to understand the human person, we need to say things about God. We can't understand ourselves except in relation to God. And so we need some account of how God 
uh, knows me and loves me and how I come to participate in God and how I can be deified, made one with God. Um, so we need some account of all of this and this idea of uh, divine activities or energies um, as a distinct uh, sort of property of God is helpful, I think, for capturing that. Um, but it's all this, this idea of energies is also helpful, I think, for talking about the human person. Um, a lot of times when we, when we think about human activities, you know, acts of intellect, acts of will, acts of sense, and so forth, uh, when we think about these in scholastic philosophy, uh, we think about these as accidents. These are additional actualities, additional properties that I take on over and above my substance. Um, and that's absolutely right, and I don't want to deny that in any sense. Um, but I think it's also important to see that my acts that I perform are not merely accidents that I take on. They're not merely actualizations of my powers, uh, but they're also manifestations of who I am. When I know something, when I love someone, when I make a choice, when I engage in various bodily acts, I am manifesting who I fundamentally am. I'm manifesting uh, what it is to be a human person, and I'm manifesting what it is to be this human person, to be Mark Spencer. Uh, and I think this idea of the, uh, the energy or energia as not just an accident, but as a property of my being, as belonging to the very structure of what I fundamentally am, this is helpful metaphysical language for capturing that feature of human activities. Interesting. Okay, so... Um, hmm. Thoughts swirling. Here's a few. Um, so the typical Thomistic picture is that any type of change always happens on the creation side of the equation. Mm -hmm. So when we have this action, that this energy that the, from God um, that displays his nature, that speaks of who he is, which mm -hmm. is the action of his divine power. Um, how do we how exactly do we connect that? to God specifically when it seems that all of the change, all of that manifestation, all that stuff happens um, simply from the change of uh, ch change of creation. It, it makes sense internal to the Trinity where we can say that there's these logical relations between persons, which we could describe as an energy or an act, like the act of, of willing, the act of loving, the, the act of understanding. Um, so, do these relate to uh, to the things happening internal to the persons of the Trinity, to things which stretch out to creation, to both, to neither, or or is there a distinct kind, one internal, one external, with the with the divine energies? Yeah. So the the divine energies, as the as the East has understood it, um, are generally. Uh, they generally don't use that language for the, uh, the acts by which the persons relate to one another, say the act of begetting or the act of, of being begotten. Um, rather, these are ways in which um, God, you know, sort of all the persons acting together manifest themselves um, both eternally to themselves and towards creation. So here we've reached another point at which uh, I, I disagree um, or at least I disagree with the Thomistic tradition, or at least I think the Thomistic tradition needs to, to have some additions made to it. Um, so I do want to affirm that God uh, performs activities that, uh, you know, metaphorically speaking, stretch out towards creation. 
here's the worry about the Thomistic view um, that, that motivates me here. So I think you articulated that absolutely correctly, that the Thomistic view, on the Thomistic view, all the change um, in God's acts uh, takes place uh, on the creation side. Um, so when I say uh, God loves me, uh, how do we cash this out metaphysically? Well, God is an eternal act of love. Uh, and I exist in a state of dependence upon him and, and relation to him. Uh, and, and we can thereby say that, that God loves me. Um, then we ask the question, well, suppose God hadn't created me, um, in, in which case he wouldn't love me because I wouldn't be here to, to love. Um, would God be any different in himself for, uh, you know, in, in that situation, as opposed to the, the current situation in which I do exist and he does love me? Um, and I think on, on the Thomistic view, metaphysically speaking, we need to say, no, uh, God would be no different in himself were I not to exist. Um, it would not be the case that he loves me in that case, uh, but the change, the difference would be entirely on the side of creation. Um, my worry about this is um, it's hard for me to see uh, how this is an adequate account of God's love for me. Uh, and again, here I sort of have recourse to phenomenology. Uh, love is uh, not just a sort of objective state existing between two beings. Uh, rather, uh, love is an experience in part. Uh, there is something that it is like to love. To love is to take a particular stance towards another individual. Um, and it's hard for me to see how those are captured on the, the Thomistic view. Uh, what I want is an account on which uh, I can say that God loves me and there's something that it's like for God to love me. And when God loves me, he takes a particular experiential or intentional stance towards me. Now, I want to affirm those things uh, while also affirming, of course, that God is... Uh, is not composed of parts, that there is nothing prior to God, uh, that God does not undergo change from potency to act because God is pure act. Uh, so I want to affirm all of those metaphysical things, which are, are key to the Catholic view of God. And I think also key to the, the philosophical view of God, the, the God that we have reason to believe exists. So I want to find a way to affirm both, both of these things. Uh, sort of uh, metaphysical immutability with experiential variability in God. And I find a way to do this, a sort of metaphysics that allows for this in the Eastern view of um, in the Eastern view of the, the energies, the energia. Uh, so these are acts that belong to the very being of a thing, but they manifest the thing according to the kind of thing that it is. Uh, one one thing that God is, is God is free. Uh, to be free is to be, to be able to engage in acts when one could have done otherwise. That is to engage in, uh, in contingent acts. Um, and so I think we have here in the, in the metaphysics of the energies, the idea of, of contingency, but without implying uh, a prior potency that is being actualized by that contingency. The distinction between the essence or usia of a thing and the energia in a thing is a distinction internal to the very structure of that being fundamentally considered. Uh, it's not an act potency distinction. Um, and so if, if we can make sense of that, 
then uh, then I think we've got a, a metaphysics that allows for what I want in my account of how God relates to us. Gotcha. Yeah, I'm going to have to think that that over for a bit. Earlier, I said, well, we'll pick between a few ways to go. And then I just got excited about learning about this one. So <laughs> we started to go. But as you describe how this this act, this this energy kind of impress, I, I think you said impresses something about itself on others, or at least it's a, a type of self-revelation, you said. Yep. Um, it kind of reminds me, we're going through um, a, I think, six or seven part series on Rerum Navarum at the moment. Hmm. And um, one section talks about how man in his labor uh, impresses on the land or capital in general mm -hmm. um, something about his nature, his yeah. personality. He kind of makes this um, self-revelation in his work. And that reminded me of a section where I think it's Bonaventure describes how things are marked with that Trinitarian stamp, though, uh, though Augustine says it far before that. But being a big fan of the fourth way, uh, as we both are, I am the self-proclaimed president of the fourth way uh, fan club. So I, oh, I got to bring it up in every episode. <laughs> um, but we have the the transcendentals and we'll get into our lists of transcendentals um, of goodness, truth and actuality or a being of some sort. So being has the actuality of to be at very least, but there's a variety of types of, of actuality. And we do see that all things do have some goodness, some truth, some actuality. I believe it's Bonaventure who lines up the three persons of the Trinity with these. So goodness would relate most fittingly to the Holy Spirit, truth most fittingly to the Logos himself, yeah. Jesus Christ. And then actuality is particularly actuality of being um, that relates most uh, perfectly to the, the father. So mm -hmm. in both of those cases, and especially since we are image bearers and it's affirmed that we stamp our image on that on which we work. Mm -hmm. And then we know that God stamps his image on that in which he works. That mm -hmm. does seem to give some evidence for the, for, for this, the energy self-revelation story that, that we're telling here. Yeah. Yeah. And the uh, sort of to add to that, um, the, I think the, the Greek view would affirm um, the, the sort of stamping of one's image, stamping of one's likeness on another is not just a sort of purely external thing in which I make something entirely separate from me. Um, but in, in some real sense, I myself am present there in the things that I make when I stamp my, my image upon them. Um, some contemporary Greek philosophers have, uh, have used this metaphysics of the energies uh, to talk about artworks, uh, for example, but I think it would extend to, yeah, sort of all, all fruits of human labor. Um, when, I, uh, when I say, listen to a, a Mozart piece, um, I, am, I am able to grasp uh, something of of who Mozart was, uh, he has has put himself into those works. When I, you know, read a, a a novel by Tolkien, I grasp something of who Tolkien is in the style that he has put into his words. Um, there, so there's a, a a sort of presence of the person's activities in the thing itself, uh, in so far as those those uh, fruits of of their labor point back to them and, and refer our attention back to the person who produced them. And so likewise with these likenesses of God, God is, uh, is present in them. Um, 
his activities, his, his self-manifestation is there in these things themselves, uh, drawing our attention back to him. Okay, yeah, it, it goes, does get a little bit tricky when reading Aquinas, when he's in his section on, um, on goodness, mm-hmm. he describes in what sense, he refers back to the fourth way reasoning, then he describes in what sense God comes into composition with mm-hmm. creation. So he describes uh, goodness, I believe, is like a form of forms. It relates properly to God. And then things participate. But he's a Thomistic realist, right? So forms aren't just platonic, you know, uh, things hanging out in a platonic heaven. Mm-hmm. But they do come into composition with things. So it sounds like the the energy idea whereby God is, in a sense, coming into composition with creation and thereby causing it to be good um yeah it seems to kind of give another way of looking at i think what he describes and it does sound very very incarnational um yeah that, that's interesting yeah i, I certainly want to emphasize that that incarnational aspect of it um i don't know that i would use the language of i wouldn't use the language of composition um i i don't want to use composition language about god right sort of affirming um Right. We're not pan, you know, pan psychists, pantheists or anything like that. But um, and the, it does get into tricky yeah. metaphysical waters, as at least Aquinas talks about in what respect he's joining himself to creation. Uh-huh. So there's certainly, as you've noted, um, a greater way that there's there's a, a lack of, of unity there. So, yes, definitely mm-hmm. don't want the listeners to think that there's incarnations going all over the place or God is somehow fused with a body or Uh that he possesses parts by virtue of his giving goodness to things. Yes. But he's really present to things. So that's, that's what I want to capture here. He is present there. He's manifesting himself through things. Um, Yet, nevertheless, these things are distinct from him. They are his works. They are not him. Right. And it sounds like the energy's distinction helps to secure all the things we're trying to talk about in a way that doesn't go too far in either direction here, either causing the problems I just outlined or entirely disconnecting um, God from being present with his creatures. That's right. Yeah. So it's meant to capture this experience we can have of God in things um, where we, we do really do, um, in a real sense, uh, encounter God uh, through the things of this world. Um, rather than just, say, reasoning from things back to God. We certainly can reason from things as, as God's effects back to God as their first cause. Um, but we can also, people also frequently have this experience of God in things, something like a perceptual experience of God, uh, where God is, you know, in a veiled way, directly presented to them. Uh, and, and the energy's language is meant to, to capture that experience. So some people might think, you too, Jake, Mark, you're being impossibly philosophical and not at all practical. But there was some very practical things I found in your book. And that is you comment on the Neoplatonic idea of theurgy and describe that a little bit and the connection with the divine. I don't know how you said it. Energia, uh-huh. <laughs> energy, whatever that was. Um, I'm famous for not being able to read. Um <laughs> But you, you describe the connection of these, and we kind of touched on the fact that um, there's this incarnational reality of which not only we embody, but but God um, God embodies in the person of Christ. Mm-hmm. And we're meant to have an incarnational 
union with God. And I liked the way that you described the ancient practice of theurgy and how that gets subsumed into the Christian tradition in a proper way, one which Augustine wouldn't spend many books attacking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so in the Christian, you know, idea of liturgy, um, mm -hmm. right. So the, you know, theurgy were these, these rites that um, ancient Greek philosophers, uh, maybe most notably uh, Iamblichus, uh, describe in which we, um, in which they, they tried to uh, sort of uh, make the gods present through material actions, right? The idea here was uh, the, the highest human acts are not merely contemplative acts in a sort of purely intellectual sense, but are liturgical acts. They are, are things that we do both with our minds and with our bodies, right? So when we, when we worship the gods, uh, then, and, and we, we make them present through physical acts, um, that that's sort of the highest sort of activity that we are capable of. Um, and the, the Christian tradition takes this idea of theurgy and, and purges it of its you know, polytheistic pagan elements, but retains this idea that, that liturgy um, with uh, both its contemplative intellectual side and its bodily uh, physical side is this, this very high act of the human person. If we want to see uh, the human person sort of fully actualized, uh, look to the liturgy, uh, look to how we can worship God uh, and sort of offer the whole world back to God uh, in this simultaneously bodily and intellectual way. Uh, so yeah, certainly, um, yeah, I guess that, you know, the, the book is, is very heavy on the technical metaphysics, um, but I do want to sort of try to inculcate this, this vision, uh, this sort of liturgical vision whereby all of our acts uh, you know, both acts of soul and acts of body are taken up into uh, the praise of God uh, and, and offering the world back to God. Um, I think there's a sense in which human beings are, um, are sort of naturally priests. Uh, we're naturally sort of this center point or linchpin of the, of the universe whereby we can understand things around us and then offer them all back to God uh, in a liturgical way. Uh, and there I think we see sort of the, one of the greatest perfections uh, of the human person. Yeah. So, you know, in the Lord's Prayer, we just did a an episode just on the Lord's Prayer. And there's the line, your kingdom come on, mm -hmm. on earth as it is in heaven. Yeah. And that kind of speaks to this idea that we're meant to conform our bodies, conform the material world to heaven. It's kind of like, a, kind of like when Moses is shown the heavenly tabernacle. He's like, hey, this is how I want you to build it on earth, right? Right. So, and then we're given um, Christ. It says, hey, be like this, the, the eternal son of the father, be like him. Um, but we're, we're given this, uh, this ability to be joined materially into that reality. So this core to that prayer is your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Mm -hmm. And I think that it, that really does inform our liturgy, liturgy that we, we kneel when we pray because we're matching the fitting posture of our bodies to what our soul ought to be doing in offering proper worship to our creator. That's right. Um, yeah. So I thought that that was, that was a, a little bit of practicality that we can throw in there. That is not, that it is reductionist to say, well, why should I kneel and pray? Well, why should we have incense at the mass? Why should we have these different material things? Just smells and bells. Mm -hmm. I think that, that, that a, um, that a Mark Spencer type character might say, 
that, that's reductionist because it's part of the human experience, which was meant to be um, meant to be where we encounter God because um, God is conscious. God is aware. God is a person, three persons, as a matter of fact. And in that act of worship, we're meant to be united to him. So we ought to have that type of first person experience of him through the goodness of the created order. So we ought to expect a type of incarnational uh, worship, which includes the smells and bells, the artwork, the beauty, um, the kneeling, the conforming as best we can uh, earth to what it would be like in the perfect worship given in heaven. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, relating back to what you were just saying about, you know, labor and, and Ram Navaram and this stuff, um, there's a sense in which that liturgical stance then I think is meant to be sort of carried out into uh, the rest of our life. Like when I work, you know, when I, when I make things, um, when I relate to other people, I ought to have this same sort of stance of all of this is an offering uh, to God. All of this is, is taking the physical world and dedicating it back to God and taking uh, what I have received from God, both by nature and grace and impressing it, stamping it upon the world. Uh, we're sort of that center point that mediates between the material world uh, and God. Uh, but the liturgy shows us this uh, sort of how to do this. Uh, it, it provides us with a model for the rest of our lives. That's something that I've, I've talked about a number of times on the podcast, that how special it is that we're, um, I've described it as like two pyramids, one kind of descending down and one coming up. Mm -hmm. And we're the highest level of material creation, but mm -hmm. we're made a little lower than the angels. So we're just that point where heaven meets earth. We're, we're just that very spot, which gives us that very special, unique priestly role. Yes. Um, so I really like that you, you focused in clarified and filled out um, that particular perspective. So I'll ask you an off the wall question. Mm -hmm. um, we did a, we did a, uh, an episode on aliens and one of the pieces that I offered was that it seems to be that there would be only one place to be at the bottom of the spiritual and the top of the material order. Now, it could be that we do have a variety of types there. So just give me your um, give me your hot take on that. one. We'll do one or two hot takes to take away. <laughs> yeah. So is the question just do, do I think there could be like intelligent aliens? Given the fact that we seem to have a special yeah. place in creation. Yeah. in this hylomorphic way, you know, whatnot, as you've described, um, does that leave place for another species different from ourselves to also be rational in the way that we're rational, to share in that same type of priesthood? Or do you think there's only role for one type of, uh, one type of creature there? No, I, I certainly think that it's possible that there are uh, intelligent aliens. Um, so I want to distinguish uh, two senses of species. Um, so there's the sense of species in the sense of biological species, um, right? So we're, you know, homo sapiens sapiens or whatever. Um, we have a particular biological structure. We have a particular genetic structure, a particular, you know, biological lineage and things like this. Um, so I want to distinguish biological species in that sense from uh, what I'll call philosophical species. Right? So we are, are rational animals. Um, or, you know, uh, embodied spirits or, you know, different Catholic philosophers use different definitions. But um, the, the, the idea there is uh, what's essential to us, philosophically speaking, is that we are 
at least normatively embodied beings. We are sensing beings. We take in information about the world uh, through our senses, through physical organs. Um, but we are also, and, and even more fundamentally, uh, rational or spiritual. We can engage in intellectual acts. We can engage in acts of will and love. Um, and so I think it is possible that there are, are other beings um, who have a different biological species. Right? They came to exist on you know, some other planet, maybe through some other uh, evolutionary lineage or by some other direct creation by God or whatever. Um, in, in some other way, they came to be in a way distinct from us, um, but they have, and they may have a distinct biology, distinct body type, but in terms of philosophical species, in terms of being uh, beings that are both material sensing beings and uh, intellectual spiritual beings, they have the same philosophical species as us. Um, so I would wanna say there's only room for one sort of philosophical species at that center point uh, of the universe, but that's consistent with different uh, biological species. Awesome answer. Yeah, when I first started looking over the book, I'm like, what is this, divine energies? I'm like, oh, he's quoting Balthasar. I'm like, I don't know if me and this guy are going to be on the same page. But you know, <laughs> it's, so far, I'm like, yeah, mm -hmm. the agreeathon continues. Um, <laughs> hot take number two. Yeah. Is practicing yoga a type of theurgy? Uh, I, I'm going to punt on this one a little bit. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know Indian philosophy very well at all. Um. I, I do want to distinguish um, sort of, uh, I don't know, yoga as, a, as an exercise method from uh, yoga in the properly like, um, you know, religious sense in the, in the various uh, Indian religions um, where it involves, you know, physical uh, exercises, religious rituals, intellectual practices, even what we would just call sort of philosophical reasoning is a kind of, is sometimes called yoga in certain Indian philosophical traditions. Um, but uh, is, it, is it a kind of, of theurgy? I just don't know. I honestly don't know enough about the Indian traditions to uh, say anything intelligent about that at all. So um, I figure we, we would start wrapping things up. And of course, you can add in anything else that you would, uh, yeah. you'd want to cover. But I figure we'd wrap it up with a place that we might be able to break the agreeathon. Awesome. And that is, you seem to think that beauty ought to be one of the transcendentals now although i could certainly change my view on this mm -hmm. um my I, i'm just not convinced i just don't think it can be categorized on it or at least i don't think it's of the same type as truth beauty and being so um if you want to wrap up a little bit because that that wasn't really necessarily a topic in the book but mm -hmm. beauty was referenced a couple places and i know you have a number of articles uh covering that so so yeah. go ahead and give me convince me yeah, good. Um, so yeah, I mean, just in the in the context of the book, certainly beauty is not the the main topic of the book, but it's certainly a central topic throughout the book. Uh, in fact, I think that uh, language having to do with beauty is some of the best language we have for capturing certain features of the irreducible human person. So I have quite a bit to say about beauty there and, and elsewhere in my writings. Um, I do think that beauty is a transcendental. Um, that is, I think this proposition is true. Every being, insofar as it is being, is beautiful. Um, now you, you said something about, uh, you know, whether beauty is a, a transcendental on the same level as truth, goodness, unity, and so forth. Um, and, and there I would say, uh, beauty is not a transcendental on the same level as those, 
Uh, beauty is a transcendental sort of on a higher level. Uh, in some sense, on my view, it is the most important of the transcendentals. Uh, what do I mean by beauty? By beauty, I mean uh, the, what I call in the book, the holistic self-manifestation of a being. Let me break that down a little bit. So every being, I think, uh, manifests itself, shows itself, reveals itself as a whole. Uh, and we human persons are capable of grasping uh, this holistic, this as a whole, self-manifestation or self-revelation of each being. Uh, so I can, when, I, when I encounter some being, um, I can grasp it intellectually. I can think about you know, what it is, why it exists. I can conceptualize it. This is to grasp the being as true, as intelligible. Um, or I can, I can desire the being. I can will that the being exists. Uh, I can respond to the being in a volitional way. This is to experience the being as good. Um, I can see that the being is, is unified with itself, that it is not self-contradictory. This is to see the being as one. Um, and, and I can just you know, encounter the being as something actual, as something that exists. Right? This is to encounter the being as being. Uh, but I can also experience all of those together. Uh, I can experience the, the self-manifestation of the being in a holistic way without parsing it out into its, its truth and its goodness and its unity uh, and so forth. Um, and, and that's what I call the beauty of a being, uh, the revelation of all the, the transcendentals taken together. That's a sort of definition of beauty taken from Jacques Maritain. Uh, and so it's in this sense that I want to say that every being is beautiful, in the sense that it can manifest itself uh, as a whole. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So it sounds like we actually have a lot of sim similarities there. So I kind of take Aquinas's view that that beauty is three things. One, it's that wholeness or integrity. Mm -hmm. It's the uh, harmony or proportionality, and mm -hmm. finally, it's the uh, the brilliance, the the radiance, the yep. the splendor. Right. Yep. So to me, my my hesitation, and maybe you can uh, fix this for me, is that each of the traditional transcendentals are convertible into being and mm -hmm. convertible into the metaphysical type of oneness. Now to poke at Thomists in mm -hmm. one of my articles on the fourth way, I offer as an example, um, redness, saltiness, and oneness. But as mm -hmm. Aristotle talks about, there's more than one type of oneness. And, uh, I, th I think actually, um, Aquinas picks it up in, um, some section of the, the summa that there's a difference between the metaphysical and numerical, um, oneness. I'm, I'm digressing a bit, mm. but um, so I see that a true transcendental ought to be convertible into that type of metaphysical oneness. Mm -hmm. And to me, I don't understand how beauty can be because I see it as, as if I was to name it something, I would name it a, a derivative transcendental. Mm -hmm. I agree that it's found where any type of being is found. I think that's true. I also agree that it transcends uh, categories. A dog can be beautiful. A sunset can be beautiful. So it, so it has those types of characteristics we would give to other transcendentals. Mm -hmm. But because it seems to be made up of these parts, not to deny that it doesn't have integrity uh, as a whole, just mm -hmm. like anything does. We have a wholeness. I know a guy who wrote a book on that. But nevertheless, it still has those parts from which it seems to be generated. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it's only for that reason that I don't want to classify it as a transcendental. It uh-huh. seems to be deriving from, um, it, it, well, just to kind of go through those, we have the wholeness or integrity. I see that as the mark of the, the father. It has the proportionality or harmony. I see that as the mark of the sun. And then it has that uh, splendor, radiance, brilliance. I see that as the mark of the Holy Spirit, because if the Holy Spirit is most properly the cause of goodness, um, who is it? Boethius, somebody says, says that goodness is diffusive of itself. So it's that radiance and splendor. Mm-hmm. And, and if I want to get speculative, and sometimes I do, <laughs> it, I see it as the height of as the height of material creation fully caused by and empowered by the true mark of all three persons of the holy spirit of the of the trinity mm-hmm. so in a sense if i had to compare it to a person i would compare beauty to the virgin mary mm-hmm. not that it's um associated with god as a person but it is empowered by god full mm-hmm. of god's grace and entirely marked by the creator and there's a few i know i'm going on and on but mary is mystically married to the holy spirit mm-hmm. the person associated with goodness yep. so i i it, we would kind of expect to see that um diffusion of goodness um and also i think beauty has this privileged role in directing us towards truth in yeah. kind of like the fast track way yep now when you walk into a cathedral the beauty of it immediately orients you to the truth by being def- through the goodness of what it is um yeah i'd say that that also beauty seems to have a more feminine character in that it's not a transitional good it's not something good for the sake of something else but in an earlier podcast i talk about a key part of um femininity is directed to and in a way a good in and of itself and not um pushed outside of itself in an intermediary way and i see beauty as something which um which has that mark that's good in and of itself and the second characteristic of um, the feminine character is it's the cause of it, it seems to initiate that community of love right so we see um it's in woman that's born Jesus Christ, right? Mm. That it's that initial community that, that this sparks. So beauty to me has that feminine character of being the place of community, pointing towards truth in that way, being united with the Holy Spirit, diffusive of itself. Um, yeah, to me, that relates um, more towards what we would think of as the characteristics of the Virgin Mary and not one of the persons of the Trinity. Yeah, so um, I don't think I disagree much with with the things you said there. Um, I mean, maybe we could you know quibble about this or that particular point, but um, when when I call beauty a, a transcendental, um, I certainly want to call attention yeah to this this radiance and and this um, the the way in which beauty is stamped upon things and gives us a sort of fast track towards the truth. The way in which beauty um, unites and has this sort of communal aspect to it. Um, but it seems to me that we can find something analogous in the structure of each being. Um, if we consider all of those transcendentals again, um, all of those transcendentals, uh, they're not separate from one another. Uh, rather, they have a sort of community with one another. There's a sense in which they're diverse from each other, um, but there's a sense in which they are all, all united and, and manifest themselves. So within the very structure of what it is to be a being, we have that sort of part aspect, that integrity aspect. 
Um, but and, and we have that radiance, that self-manifestation aspect. Um, but but we also have that unity with one another. And that's the sense in which I want to say analogous to the various cases you're talking about, we can find uh, beauty in each being. So it sounds like we don't disagree on that terribly much. Yeah, I, to me, it seems I, I think there are a few places which we're not, um, which I got to think about because I like the way that you presented um, beauty in a variety of the works you did. So I'm really kind of thinking that over to me. If I had to place a bet, I'd say beauty is that quality um, that creation has that comes entirely from God. Um, but when creation is at its best, it's beautiful. And it's only beautiful because of its um, creation by God yeah. and being stamped with the image of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost in kind of the way that we were getting at with the energies. Yeah, that's in, that sounds absolutely right. Yeah. Well, on that... Um, on that note, um, I know you have office hours coming up. So, uh, well, let's wrap it up here. I really appreciate you coming on. I Likewise. think we, we, we covered all sorts of cool things here yeah. and there's so much more in the book. So, um, buy the book listeners. No, no. I mean you, you, the one listening. Um, I, I, I forget where I got it on, but, um, yeah, I know that we had, uh, it's on Amazon. I assume, yep. um, if you, if you Google Mark Spencer, if you look up the irreducibility of the human person, you will find it. Um, is there any other place that I should direct you? Amazon is great. Uh, you can buy it on the publisher's website, Catholic University of America Press. But uh, Amazon's probably the easiest place for most people to, to buy a copy. Thanks. Awesome. Really appreciate it. Well, great. Well, come back anytime. Invite yourself if you like. I really learned a lot. So thanks so much, Mark. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed being here. Great. God bless. Bye.